Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hey, how are ya? Welcome, my friends, to the Run Run Live podcast, episode 4302. How you been? Maybe, maybe you're a new friend. Maybe you got one of those brand new shiny eye devices for Christmas and you're just dipping your toe into the podcast world. By the way, I like your nail polish. Matches your eyes. But that tattoo must have hurt, no? Anyway, this is Chris, your host, and we've been sharing a podcast in and about running and endurance sports for a few years now. Welcome. I'm coming to you from the grassy steppes of Independence, Kansas, where I run a feral yak farm in between professional gigs. The running is challenging out here. The wind cutting across the plains in the winter is a bit biting, but you get used to it. And you know The toughest warriors are from the steppes. The Scythians, the Huns, the Mongols, they all rode down on civilization from the windy grasslands. But there's something going on with the yak herd. I think it might have something to do with the government neurotoxin research facility a couple miles up Spring Creek. Some of the yaks don't look so good. They look, I don't know, disoriented. Disoriented Yak would be a good name for a ska band, don't you think? Well, I didn't make it down to Atlanta for the Jeff Galloway 13.1. I just couldn't swing it. Sounds like Kevin and his friends had a fun time. I've been actually getting some decent base building in on my own. I'm too old to run every day without breaking something, so I figured it out, and I'm kind of stabilized at four days a week, which seems like the right balance. I worry whether I can get enough volume of miles in to race well at the marathon distance on only four days a week of running. So we're trying to work around this and figure out what the right mix is. Uh, Coach has, in response, extended my weekday runs out to like 120, 130, which really helps. So the good news is, is that it gets me out long enough to build some base, some base fitness, and it gets that mileage up, that weekly mileage up. So right now, he's got me doing Tuesday, Thursday, Friday during the week, and that gives me an automatic base in the mid to high 20-mile range. 
uh, per week. And then when you lay on the Sunday long run, I can get up into the 40s. That's the compromise. It's enough to get the fitness I want, hopefully, without pushing me over the edge into injury. The training impact of that extra, and this is kind of the takeaway here, the training impact from that extra 20 or 30 minutes, you know, instead of running for an hour, running for an hour and a half in my weekly runs, really makes a difference. It's it's a kind of a challenge, though, when I'm busy, but I feel like I'm building a base that will support me in the run up to Boston this spring. So th- this past weekend, my friend Brian and I reprised the Groton Marathon. So this is a marathon we made up last year to get a December marathon. And the way it works is that Brian and I, we lay out a course around town, the town I grew up in, Groton, and we invite all the crazy people we know and we go out and we run a marathon. (laughs) And I count it as an official marathon because my game, my rules, kids, that's it. That's my 48th marathon. So we changed the course this year, and we looped it through Groton, Air, Shirley, and even a little bit of Harvard, Massachusetts. Part of the fun and the challenge is to create a course through New England towns that stays off the main roads but isn't overwhelmingly difficult. Uh, it was about 32 degrees with a really pretty light snowfall for the for the whole whole time we were out there. Pretty good running weather. There's there's no snow on the ground up here because we it just didn't stick this year. Last year was a ton of snow. This year not no snow, uh, and the roads were clear. We started eight o'clock in the morning and we got back afternoon. We had a dozen or so people join us for some part of the route, and we had one person go the distance with us this year. So that's what that's a a fifty percent increase in the field size year over year. That's tremendous growth. A big crew of folks ran the first half with us, and then they cut back. And another couple of our friends picked us up at mile 17 and ran us in. And we we dropped water and Gatorade every four to six miles. But I'm sorry to report that I did not come in first this year. I had gapped Brian by a good two to three minutes after mile 20. But I waited for him. At, it was a tactical mistake. I waited for him at one of our water stops, and he got a second wind at, at mile 24 and took off. I didn't have the mental or physical closing speed to, to chase him down. So it was a great run. It always scares me a little just to show up and run a marathon, but this this one was pretty easy. We went super slow and stopped every couple miles to get refreshments, and it ended up with about a thousand feet of elevation gain and loss, but nothing horrible. I was able to keep good form. My heart rate was solidly in zone two the whole time. No problems. I did end up getting some strange chafing. I got welts on, as Forrest Gump would say, my butt talks. So somehow from the new Asics tights I was wearing, I've never had chafing there before. It looked like someone took me to the woodshed. So how did you like the first episode of the 100% recycled organic Run Run Live 4.0 podcast? I'm going to keep tweaking it, but I wanted to get it out. Action is better than inaction, and progress is better than perfection. It's not supposed to be professional. (laughs) It's supposed to have high enough quality content presented in such a way as to not annoy you, 
but it's certainly not professional. In today's show, which, with any luck, should drop on Boxing Day or sooner, we will have a piece on how to turn your winter doldrums into an investment in your running. And I also bring you a rousing piece on how to set big, hairy-ass goals the right way to transform your life in that second section. And the interview was a bit of an experiment. Back at the end of the summer, I was asking around for guest interviews and guest interviewees done by some friends of the show. So today we bring you an interview of Roxanne by Paula. I haven't even listened to it yet, and I know it's going to be fabulous, utterly fabulous. Paula and I go way back to the inception of Twitter, where we quickly became virtual friends because of our mutual love of writing and speaking and many other things. So we've been virtual friends since Twitter was just for cool kids. And uh, you can go to visit Paula's blog, Paula Keeger, at www.biggreenpen.com and consider helping her fundraising efforts for the New York City half she's got coming up. Roxanne now, she's another one of our longtime Twitter friends. She is one of those stars of our endurance community. Thankfully, we hear stories like Roxanne's more each year. She's a mom. She was seriously overweight. She took her life into her own hands. She became a marathoner, an Ironman. She transformed into a happier, healthier, better person. And I hope you learn as much from these two energetic ladies as I have. That's it, my friends. Enjoy your holidays and be nice to your family. You only get one shot at that. Uh, but before I let you go, I'm going to give you a quick tip that I've been using to get my writing done recently. You know I just wrote a new book, right? So anyhow, to get this stuff written, you need to hide from distractions like social media while you're creating. So I've developed a very simple trick to do this. I just set the timer on my iPhone for 30 minutes. It's the timer app that comes with the iPhone. It's there already. Every phone has one of these. And I just commit to writing without distraction until the timer goes off. It's just like working out. The hardest part is getting started. But once you get started, it has a momentum of its own. When something pops up or beeps for my attention, I don't take the bait until the 30 minutes is up. At 30 minutes, I give myself permission for a little bit of wandering. But frankly, by that point, I'm neck deep in my topic and I don't want to stop. I'll complement this by going into YouTube and spinning up some meditation music. It helps calm your mind without uh, distracting you. So give that a try. I know this isn't a new idea. There are official methodologies and software solutions for this if you want to go down that rabbit hole, but this is a simple solution that I found for a common problem without over-engineering it, which you and I could stand more of, no? On with the show. I am grateful for the gifts I've been given. All right, there's dog hair on my microphone. Hey, dog, you get hair on my microphone. Winter fun. What can we do to stay involved and sane in the winter months? If you're on my side of the world, it's winter. With winter in New England means short days, cold weather, 
and piles of ice and snow, like Jack Nicholson in The Shining. It can make you crazy. What's an endurance athlete to do? The fall race season is over. The spring races are months away. You're caught in this cold, dark, miserable, sargasso sea of training. How do you find your rudder and put this winter interval into good use? Well, here are ten ideas, ten ideas of how to positively get through the winter. One, make up your own event. Just because there are no official races scheduled within a week of Christmas doesn't mean you can't create your own event. You don't need permission. Just schedule a marathon or a half marathon or a 10K or a 5K run and invite all your friends. If you want to have some fun, print up numbers or wear costumes or have medals. More of these self-supported holiday events are cropping up on the calendar and you can create your own to add spice to your winter doldrums. Two, get outside and enjoy the weather. Just because it's cold and snowy and dark doesn't mean the great out-of-doors is off-limits. Grab the kids and the dog. Go for a hike. Go sledding. Go snowshoeing. Go skiing. Go skating. Get out. Enjoy the season. Getting out and getting some fresh air into your lungs will do wonders to cure your midwinter blues. Three, go to the gym and master something new. Most endurance athletes hate the gym. It's just not as much fun as going out for a run. That's because you haven't taken the time to master something. Master a specific weightlifting routine. Go master squats or curls. Get one of the coaches or the gym rats to teach you the proper form and do that routine twice a week for three weeks. You can't learn anything if you only do it once. Instead of just playing at an exercise, pick one and really learn it and try to master it. Four, work on your core. Winter is the perfect time to work on your core. You're not training for anything. You can go and do a push-up or a plank challenge for a few weeks. See how strong you can get. Your body will thank you. Five, stretch. Yeah, we all hate stretching. Flexibility is a pain in the butt, especially as you get older. You've got time now. You can get some coaching, do some research, really focus on flexibility. Can't touch your toes? I bet you could if you worked on it for two or three straight weeks. Six, try some yoga. Get a lesson from a friend or a yogi and really try to get your mind and body connected into the poses. Spend a few weeks. Try to master one or two short routines that you can carry with you into the new year. 7. Learn to meditate. Again, you've got a couple of weeks of downtime, so why not explore the dusty spaces inside your own cranium? Get some coaching. Try the different forms. See what works for you. Spend a couple weeks on it and see what you can learn. 8. Learn some new cardio games. Don't like the treadmill? Try the elliptical or the bike trainer or the rowing machine. Find some challenging and entertaining multi-week challenge that you can embark on. After a few weeks, you'll have a new cardio expertise in your quiver to draw on. 9. Hit the pool. What? You can't swim? Well, now's the time. 
Take those winter months and find a total immersion class you can crash. Work on your swim form for a few weeks and you'll cruise into the spring race season, feeling like a champ. And number 10. Master your form. Everyone thinks they have good running form. Guess what? You don't. Have a coach watch you and work on fixing your mechanics. Spend a few weeks focusing on cleaning up your form, and it will pay off a hundredfold in the future. Maybe you have a spring marathon coming up, and you're already supposed to be training for it. All these activities above that I've talked about support the early weeks of a training plan. There's no conflict there. Use this time to build your strength and your flexibility as you build your base fitness. It's very complimentary. The key with all this activity is to treat it as a real campaign. Take one or two activities and commit at least two times a week for at least three weeks. Get the coaching up front, and this will give you enough practice and enough time to start to master that activity, and your body and your mind will actually learn something. It's really about asking the right questions. Do you ask yourself bad questions like, how do I distract myself so I can survive this winter? How about asking a better question like, what investment can I make in my fitness and my skills that will pay off later? It's part of the adventure. Commit to it. Enjoy it. There we go, my friends. Ten ways to invest in yourself this winter season. Instead of moping around in the cold and dark and feeling sorry for yourself, Get out there and seize the opportunity to grow. And now for today's featured interview. Roxanne? Yes. We're alive. Awesome. Yeah. My name is Paula Tiger, and I will be talking today with Roxanne Cameron. Roxanne, we share a coach through Team TRS Fit, so we've been acquainted for a while, but you're in Canada and I'm in Florida, so we haven't met in person. It's great to talk with you in more detail. Definitely. I'm excited. Yeah. For starters, why don't you give us the 200 words or less on who you are, what you do, and why we're talking? Well, I am a mother of three. I am a wife. I'm also uh, an ex-obese athlete. Uh, I've been working with uh, PRS Fit for four years, and I became, through PRS Fit, a runner, a marathoner, and now I'm a recently uh, declared an Ironman. Yes, that is so exciting. How did you decide, you mentioned that you're a formerly obese individual, how did you decide to start running and beginning the athletic life? Um, it's it, life. Life happened that way. I uh, I had a fender bender, and I ended up in my chiropractor's office. And uh, he had seen me gain the weight, you know, the three times baby weight and all that. And uh, he plainly said, look, I can treat you for the rest of your life every week, or you can shed the weight, get in shape, so you can be healthy enough to... Uh, you know, to meet your grandchildren, and that hit me like a brick. And uh, that was in June 2007, and I started losing some weight by changing my eating habits. And then um, two months later, I started walking uh, to the end of the street, which is um, probably 300 feet. 
And then my husband and I decided to invest in a treadmill because I was using rain as an excuse. And, uh, yeah, so I started walking 30 seconds a minute. And then by January, um, my chiropractor, who is a triathlete as well, and a many-time Boston marathoner, he suggested that I started running to get a better bang for my buck, as he said, and that's how I got started. That's some story. The audio had a little bit of an interruption. What year was it that you said this all began for you? Um, June 2006, uh, 2006, sorry, June 2006, 2006, I had my fender bender, and by January 2007, I started running. Okay. And then once you had been running, what led you to take it the next step and pursue triathlon? Um, I did a few 5Ks, a few 10Ks, but I kept getting injured. I kept taking training um, schedules off a, a book or a magazine and applying it. And uh, I just had so many muscle imbalances and and not being fit all my life, being obese most of my life. I used to be 80 pounds heavier than I am now. Um, I just... I just kept getting injured, and my chiropractor suggested that I become a triathlete since I was already a swimmer. Um, just to, through the three sports, there was less injury risk than if I was just running, and that's how I got started. So I started with a try-a-try, um, which is, I think you call it super sprints, uh-huh. and I had so much fun, and it took the boredom out of always just running, and I just, yeah, I just decided to do that. So I've, I've done a few marathons since then, and so the off season, which is from October here to May, I run, and then during the summer I, I get a few triathlons in. Yeah, it sounds like that chiropractor had a big influence on your progression and your decision to continue pursuing these efforts. He definitely was the one that inspired me that I could be fit as well because I always thought, not me. I'm, my genes are telling me I should be heavy. My genes are telling me my whole family is uh, definitely overweight with diabetes and, and heart problems and, you know, uh, heart disease. And uh, I just never thought that I could. And he's the one that believed in me and got me on the right track. And from then, um, I met people through running and cycling and swimming that got me to where I am today. Ultimately, you ended up deciding to do your Ironman competition in Boulder, correct? Yes. What ultimately led you to decide to do that particular race in that particular location? To decide to do an Ironman, it's always been... It, it's, it, it's always been at the back of my mind that thing that I never thought I could do. Like when I started running, I remember training for 5Ks and 10Ks and half marathons, and I remember that some of my peers in the training group I was running with were training for marathons, and I kept telling myself there is no way I would dedicate that much running, that much time to running. It's just too much time. I am not in, at the least interested and then one thing left to another, when I got the first marathon in, then, then that seed in my mind was planted. Well, maybe one day, you know, maybe by the time I'm 60, I'll be able to do an uh-huh. Ironman. Then one thing led to another, and I kept being successful at finishing great distances. And I thought, well, now is the time. And it just so happened that our coach, Jeff, 
uh, became the official um, coach for that boulder race. And so I, w- I had access to entries without uh, risking to, um, because the, the whole race was sold out within a week. And yeah. uh, so, you know, knowing him, getting that entry and all that was what just triggered everything else. Tell us about your strategy once you had decided that Ironman Boulder was your goal race. What was your strategy to prepare for it? First of all, I kept working with my coach, Jeff. It made it easier for me because he was worrying about the thinking and I was worrying about getting it done. So my whole strategy was every day to get the workouts done. And then I left the thinking all to him. So I kept my eating clean. I I ate as clean as I could, as metabolically efficient as I could. And because I I was a teacher when I started the training program, and midway through I graduated to a principal position, that completely threw everything out of the window, the the strategy of getting things done and just trying to put everything in every day. That that was my main goal. I trusted that if I did that, the race was going to happen. What would a typical day look, have looked like maybe about three-quarters of the way through your training? That's probably when things were starting to get pretty um, Depending heavy. on the day, if it was um, a swim day or a run-slash-bike day, I would get up between 3.30 and 4.30 in the morning uh, to get at least I would have one or two workouts a day to get done, so at least the first workout would be done in the morning, the longest one, because I had to be out the door on my way to work by 7.30, and usually those workouts were about 90 minutes to two hours. So come home, my husband would take care of the children. I would come home, make my lunch, shower, and then off to work until about 5 o'clock at night, and then the second workout would happen while I took one child to ballet classes or I would drop off, you know, taxi driving, I would drop off one child, get my second workout done then, and then pick my kids up and go home. So I would come home between 8.30 and 9 o'clock and go straight to bed. Made for a long day. (laughs) Very long day, but rewarding as well because you're so exhausted after all the training and the mum stuff and the work stuff done that... You, I mean, sometimes I wouldn't even remember my head hitting the pillow. I would just fall asleep. Sure, because 3.30 was going to roll back around pretty quickly. <laughs> That's right. That's right. What would you consider the most challenging part of that training period when you were working up to Ironman Boulder? There was two huge challenges for me. I thought originally it would be to stay healthy and not getting injured, but that turned out to be not even the issue. My schedule, my workout schedule was so well prepared that I, for the first time I entered a race and not being injured at all or recovering from an injury. But the two main obstacles were being there for my family and getting the workouts done with the, you know, the, the difficulties of being a mom, being a wife, and being a school principal in a new job. So getting the workouts in was what I struggled the most because sometimes I would have meetings at night or I would have meetings early in the morning and managing that schedule was a huge ordeal for me. And the fear of not being able to finish the Ironman made me extremely obsessive about getting those workouts in because I thought if I can get them in, for sure I'll succeed. You know, I didn't even think about the mental preparation. I just thought if I can get the physical workouts done, then I'll be fine. 
and then coming home at 7.30 after a long run in the morning and having my family at the dinner uh, the breakfast table and my husband trying to plan the day with my children and my children saying, oh, let's not ask mommy because she's training. She doesn't have time. So that was hard. You know, listening to oh. my children discussing that I was never there for important things because I had to train. They understood why and they were supportive of that, but you can't take that time back. So that was challenging as well. Understandably. What got you through the training when things seemed the most difficult, when it was the most tempting to to say, I'm not sure I want to go on? What, what got you through those moments or those days? Uh, my husband was a definite cornerstone. When the mornings I, did, I just did not want to get out of bed because I was exhausted, he just pushed me out of bed. You made a commitment. You're not a quitter. Get out there and get it done. And my training partner, Signe, she was uh, definitely, she was always there meeting me at, at um, critical times when either of us were wanting to slack off. We were always there for each other. So that's definitely, those two people were definitely very important. And filling in my logs for my coach, when Coach would read my logs and he felt like I was slacking off, he would give me a Skype call. He would send me an email. So those three people were very important in getting it done. There's definitely and, power in knowing someone is counting on you to fulfill your end of the deal and, and is willing to hold you accountable. Definitely. And I guess sharing it with my coworkers, my, my teachers at school and my students, Often they would ask me, so how are you doing with your training? How far did you go today? How far did you run before you even came to work? And that kept me accountable because I didn't want to say, oh, I didn't get out of bed this morning. Right, sure. Well, let's talk about race day. As you competed that day in Boulder, how did you feel about the influence of all, all of those months of preparation on your actual performance that day? It's funny enough that you ask me this because on race day, race morning, I'm, I'm walking around with Sydney, my training partner that did the race with me, and we're getting ready to board the shuttles. And I looked at her and I had tears in my eyes and she goes, what's wrong? Are you okay? And I said, oh my God, I never thought I would make it to this day. Like I, I thought something was going to happen when a child was going to get sick or or I was going to get injured. Like, I always expected something to get in the way of getting it done. So I didn't feel the pressure. I mean, I was fearful of, of, of that day and all that in a positive way, but I never completely felt that I was doing that until 5.30 that morning. And then it just hit me like a brick. And then all these emotions of all those hours, those years, you know, losing the weight and getting fit and being a good example for my family and my children and all that came to to hit me in one big ball of emotion getting on that shuttle. So that was really special. But I felt physically ready. Um, I hit every single breakthrough workout that I had to, um, I probably completed about 90% of all the workouts that were assigned, so I felt ready. Um, during the process, there were times where I didn't think, you know, when you look at your weekly schedule, I didn't think that, that I had the energy to get that long run or that long brick done. But once I'd done all that, I was confident 
that the only way they were going to keep me from finishing is that they had to peel me off that course on a stretcher or they were going to prevent me because there was no way I was not going to finish. And that was my goal. So I felt confident I could do it, but it didn't really hit me until that specific morning. I had my nutrition plan ready. I had, I'm a planner, so everything was planned weeks ahead. I had numerous conversations with my coach about, you know, uh, contingency plans. If something, if one plan had to go out the window, like I was physically and mentally ready. What obstacles happened throughout that day of your race that no amount of practice or rehearsal or training could have prepared you for? Was there anything of that nature? Oh, yes. I was prepared with contingency plans because of outside things, like things outside of my uh, doing would happen, but I was not prepared for mistakes that I'd made. So, for example, on the bike, a little bit after, about 77 miles, I ran out of electrolytes. I had packed enough, but they had fallen apart in my saddlebag. So all I had was empty capsules and powder, and and that kind of threw me off because I'm like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? And I tried to find other source of electrolytes on the course, but um, there was nothing that uh, would work for me. So I said, okay, I have another amount of, of electrolyte and durolytes in my in my run bag, I'll be okay. And three miles into my run, I lost that bag. So that led me to be extremely dehydrated. And so by mile seven or eight, my body was shutting down. I couldn't keep anything in. And thank God my coach was on the course. I saw him at about mile 10, and he told me what to do about it. But if he wouldn't have been there, I don't know if I would have been able to finish because my body was shutting down. I couldn't keep anything in. Even if I tried to drink things, I would gag. I couldn't take any nutrition, anything solid. Nothing was going in, and everything was coming out. So that was what I was not prepared for, my body not responding to what I was telling him or demanding demanding it to do. What ended up being easier or if not easier different than you anticipated well I expected by the time I got to the run to the marathon part of the run I expected to be exhausted and in a lot of pain I expected my legs not to respond so I expected to walk a lot of the marathon because my legs hurt so badly but I never expected that I had to walk because my body was shutting down yeah. So the huge pain of not wanting to go forward never really happened for me. It was all, it doesn't matter how how much cramping I'm going through. It doesn't matter what, like people around me were like, oh, you're looking great. And because I was walking away from them, they thought I could, I was out of earshot, but I could hear them. And they said, oh, my God, she looks horrible. But <laughs> not once did I think that I was going to quit. Not wanted it enter my mind, and I expected that I wanted to to quit because I told everybody my supporters that were there, "Don't let me quit." But yeah. it never entered my mind. I always knew I was going to finish unless they would prevent me to finish. So that was completely unexpected. So it was easier in a way, but I didn't expect the physical ailment to alter how I was going to perform. I expected pain to do that, not sickness. What advice would you have for anyone considering a journey to 
an Ironman competition through their own personal escalation of their athletic goals. Oh, my God. If I can do it, I use, I'm five feet tall. I used to be 225 pounds. If I can do it, anyone, and I mean anyone can, I'm the ultimate back-of-the-pack runner. I always finish last in my age group, and I did it. All you have to do is click enter on that registration form and commit to it. It's all about commitment. Make sure that whoever's in your life, before you commit, you have a talk with them so they can understand how important it is to you and the time and the sweat and the tears you're going to have to put yourself through and if they're willing to be there for you. But if they are, do it. Hearing them call your name while you cross that finish line and say you're an Ironman is, to me, the greatest achievement that I could physically achieve. As an and athlete. I was able to see that moment on streaming video. So even just as a viewer, I can attest that it was a very emotion-filled, thrilling moment. So it's it's great to relive it through you as well. Now that you have achieved that Ironman goal, what what's next for you? Oh, gosh. Right now, I have to be honest, I'm really enjoying um, the recovery process of doing absolutely nothing and not having to do anything. I went for my first run this morning with no monitor, no watch, no nothing, just enjoying being outside, enjoying being with my family, going back to work next week. So I'm just enjoying alcohol, enjoying wine, enjoying beer, enjoying food. But I think that next for me will be just getting stronger in certain areas where I feel I'm lacking. Focus on the running part on shorter distances like half marathons and 10Ks. I need to get faster. I think when I first signed up, my husband kept telling me, you know, honey, it's about the journey, not about the finish line because this is it. We're not going to do this again. It doesn't matter if you don't finish in time. And he, after I crossed the finish line, he understood how important that was for me. So he said, maybe in five years. So I think I'll do another one, but not until I I tweak my running, you know, get a little bit faster, a little bit stronger. That's what's next for me now, but definitely another one someday. I'm going to start working us toward the exit of our interview now. How can people find you if they want to follow up? Do you have a blog, social media? Um, on Twitter, I'm uh, RockFalls95. And on Facebook, I'm just Roxanne Camerand. Um, you can find me uh, on the PRS Fit page as well. I'm quite active there. Because of my job, the social media that, I, that I'm active on is usually limited just because of uh, school board policies. Well, Roxanne, it has been fabulous talking to you. I really appreciate you taking the time to share your story. I think it can inspire such a wide range of people. I think it can inspire the person who's still on the couch who has the 80 pounds to use and the person who's made it a little farther and isn't sure if they want to pursue an Ironman-type competition. For that reason, I really, really appreciate your candor and your taking time to share your story with us. Oh, thank you. Well, I have to say that I just had a chiropractor's appointment this morning, and the one that got me on my fitness path has yesterday registered for an Ironman, his first. So I think oh, that's wow. 
Yeah, like it, you know, so to me, if I can inspire anybody to get off the couch and, and get healthy, my life has changed dramatically through um, being an athlete, and uh, I certainly hope that I'll inspire anybody. Yeah, well, since your chiropractor signed up, it's almost like things coming 360, right? Exactly. It's like a loop, you know, closing up a loop. I was, I was really emotional when he told me that this morning. It was awesome. That is a very neat story and a very neat way to end things. Thank you again so much, Roxanne. Well, thank you, Paula, and uh, hopefully we'll meet in person one day. I hope so, too. You take care. Okay, you too. All right. Bye. Bye. When someone tells you how to do something, they assume there is a better way. But sometimes there is only a different way. Okay, let's break that frame. My friends, as we come into 2015, it's time to start thinking about new goals or new projects for the new year. Let's lay down some framework to make that easier and more effective, shall we? Now, it's a bit of a cliche that we settle back on the first of the calendar year and we try to come up with ways we are going to create positive change in the next 12 months, isn't it? In the past, I've railed against this whole process. I have argued that what makes January 1st any different than any other day? If you need to create positive change in your life, why wait? Why create artificial calendar rules for it? Shouldn't positive change be woven into the fabric of your life? How does waiting until the 1st of January while you're nursing your hangover make it any easier? And given the abysmal record of most New Year's resolutions, we could confidently state that this whole thing is just another form of self-deception and procrastination, but... Instead of being the grumpy old guy and being all negative on the process, I'm going to jump on the bandwagon this year, like every weight loss program does. Let's assume this is a great time to make decisions. Decisions on habits and goals and all those other things that make your head swim. It's true. We do have some downtime this time of year. The intensity of our careers drops away for a couple of weeks. We find ourselves in our own homes, surrounded by our own families. And it is indeed a petri dish for the cultivation of positive introspection. Let's go with that. Let's double down. How do we create real and compelling life change in the new year? Now, if you're following and listening to me, this probably isn't your first rodeo with positive change and goal setting. One issue is that our positive change each year is incremental. We're only expanding to the edges of our personal universe each year. Maybe last year you started that exercise program and ran those races. The year before, you lost some weight and went to couples counseling. The year before that, you stopped biting your nails and read a couple of books. Were those really life-changing? Well, yes and no. They were incrementally life-changing. They were life-changing within a set box. Maybe you nudged the edges of your comfort zone. Maybe you pushed against the frames of your life's construct like a mime in a pretend box. But... How do you break that frame? What can we do this year to create real change? 
So we need a vehicle that will stretch us, that will change us and force us to learn. We need a thing that will pull us out of our comfort zone. We need a big, hairy-ass goal. That's right, a BHAG. So what's a BHAG in this context? Well, the BHAG itself is not a new idea. It was popularized by Jim Collins in his business books, most notably Good to Great. And in his worldview, he was talking about how companies set goals that drove transformational change in organizations and institutions. That was where BHAGs entered into the pop consciousness. Now, we can leverage this concept to break our frames. Let's use the BHAG as a vehicle or a placeholder for that notion of positive change in our lives. And let's set a BHAG now in the new year. So what are the rules for finding a BHAG that creates positive transformational change in your life? Here we go. Take notes. First, it must be a real challenge for you, but achievable at the same time. It can't be something that has a 100% chance of success. That won't challenge you. For example, last year, I ran a marathon a month for 13 months. And you might say that is a transformational goal. But for me, it really wasn't because I knew with 98, 99% certainty that simply running 26.2 miles once a month was pretty easy for me. That wasn't a transformational goal for me. This is a big trap to avoid when defining your BHAG. It's called more of the same. And most of the goals that you think of right away that pop in your mind are going to be more of the same goals. And if you simply set a goal to do more of something that you're already doing, how does that stretch you? If I had never run a marathon before, well, then running a marathon a month would certainly be transformative. But for me, it was more of the same. And there was very little risk of failure. So what is the right percentage of uncertainty that you want in your BHAG? The simple answer is that your BHAG should have a 60 to 75% chance of success. That's a good challenging goal. It's risky enough that you really have to stretch and change to achieve it, but not so hopeless as to be emotionally unattainable. If you set a goal that only has a 10% chance of success, you won't be able to commit emotionally to it. It's too far out of reach. It may seem like a linear, logical assumption that the crazier the goal, the more growth you'll get out of it, but this isn't true. When the probability of success drops too low, you disconnect from the goal and it ceases to have the power to pull you. 60 to 75% success. It's still quite a challenge and will take courage to commit to. Okay, secondly, when you select the BHAG of the right size and shape for your universe, it will force you to learn new things. To achieve that BHAG, you'll spend some time on a steep learning curve. And this will result in personal growth. Again, selecting something you're already an expert at makes for a less effective BHAG. This is the more of the same comfort zone again. If you're not forced to learn, if you don't feel like a newcomer in a strange and scary land, then you didn't design the right BHAG. Third, 
We are looking for something that will drive life change, not point achievement. The BHAG that you set must change you forever, not just be a one-off. Your BHAG must result in permanent changes to your capabilities, to your knowledge, to your lifestyle. Achieving that BHAG or even attempting and failing should create sustainable change. This is why I don't like bucket list goals, because they're one and done. Bucket list goals are more like holidays. Sure, you can pat yourself on the back and look at the great selfies you took on top of that mountain you climbed, but did it change you? Did it make you a different person? Fourth, in order to be an even more worthy BHAG, it should serve others, not just you. This can simply be the Venturi effect of your own change cascading to others in your circle of influence, meaning that because you did this thing, you have inspired others to be pulled into your wake and caused positive change in them and the world as a result. That's okay. The BHAG can also be overtly about someone or something else. We've all seen people who have caused positive change in their own lives by embracing the causes of others. How does your BHAG change? Not only your world, but the world of your stakeholders. Fifth, your BHAG needs to make you happy. Don't make the mistake of assuming someone else's cause or goal. This is a pale substitute, and it will not inspire great change in you. Don't do something because you think it will make someone else happy. Don't do something because someone else told you that you should. In order to be intrinsically motivating, your BHAG needs to make you happy, however you define that. Sixth, your BHAG should have a long-term time frame. It should look ahead five or ten years into the future, not just this year. This will break you out of the trap of thinking too small. True positive change is a long-term equation. Seventh, your BHAG should create immediate urgency. And a long-term BHAG will paradoxically create urgency. You may think that having a goal for 10 years out would not be urgent, but the opposite is true. By making it a long-term goal, it necessarily is a big goal, and the size of that goal 10 years from now looming will scare the hell out of you, and it'll force you to get to work right now. The only way to achieve something so big is to become obsessed and maniacal about it right now, today. The eighth key element is that your BHAG should require a quantum step in your capabilities. Stealing a bit of Jim Collins's language there, quantum step, what does that mean? It means you'll have to change the structure of your approach, the method or organization that you leverage to achieve the goal will be different than what you have today and what you are used to. You'll have to change your game because if you choose the right BHAG, you don't have the tools in your current toolbox to get there. Ninth, it's really about the journey and not the destination. The BHAG is just a convenient metaphor, a vehicle 
and a psychological hook for you to define positive change that you want to see in your life. So let's review. My BHAG rules for you to do as your New Year's resolution. Number one, your BHAG should be a real challenge with a, only a 60 to 75% chance of success. Secondly, your BHAG should force a steep learning curve. Third, your BHAG should create sustainable change, not one-time improvement or achievement. Four, your BHAG should serve others. Five, your BHAG should make you happy. Six, your BHAG should be long-term. Seven, your BHAG should create urgency. Eight, your BHAG should require a change in your game. Nine, it's the journey, stupid, not the destination. Enjoy the ride. Cheers. This is the end, my only friend. No safety or surprise. The end. We'll never pass this way again. The end. That was a good one, bud. Well, my friends, that was fun, right? It's different for me to be writing and recording for you at, at home instead of in a hotel or an airplane. I hope I don't lose that fun, caustic edge I bring when I'm being chased by the unrelenting stress balls out in the world. Well, we'll see. Thanks for listening to the second episode in the 4.0 series. I went back to my website last week and I fixed the index page so you can see all the downloadable episodes of audio that I've ever produced. Uh, the index is this cool little WordPress plugin. You just tell it which categories to include and it rounds up all the links and it puts them on one page. So that's a tab on my website. It's an alphabetical sort, which isn't the best, but it's workable. I suppose I could go out and add some metadata around guests and topics, but that's one of those nice-to-haves that doesn't usually make it to the top of my list. If you have any suggestions, love, hate, or anything, any kind of feedback, would love, love, love the feedback. Drop a comment on the website on any of the posts. It's WordPress, so you can put comments right on the posts. Or shoot me an email or drop me a note at uh, the Run Run Live Facebook page or tweet me, CYKT Russell. Especially if there's some sort of running, racing, or training question you'd like me to write on for the show, uh, I kind of sort of feel like it's all been talked about at this point, but I don't mind repeating stuff, if, uh, especially if it's interesting to you and you get some value out of it. That's what I do. The big, big, big news this week is that I'm not crazy. Well, <laughs> let's be, let's, let's be serious here. I'm not totally crazy. The cardiologist found a bug in my heart. They think I have exercised induced arrhythmia. And that's exactly what I described it to them, uh, losing power at the end of a workout when I push it hard. And this particular bug, they think, is electrical. One of the little electrical circuits, conduits, in one of my ventricles, it decides to short out every once in a while and cause that arrhythmia when I, you know, especially when I push, and that's that power loss I've been feeling. So oddly, I see this as excellent news 
because it exactly it exactly maps to what I've been experiencing, right? It means I'm not crazy, and I do know my machine, and I do know when something's wrong. And I picked it up as an athlete where normal people probably wouldn't. What it is not is a physical abnormality of my heart. You may hear a lot of talking these days about athletes' hearts, you know, where the heart becomes asymmetrically developed. It ain't that. And it's also not a blockage or like Dave had or anything like that. And it won't kill me, probably. So this type of thing isn't the precursor to a, like a massive heart attack. It's not one of those, oh, my God, we get to get you on the table things. Uh, it could potentially cause blood pooling and clotting in that ventricle um, that could lead to stroke if, we're, if, if it were to get much worse and happen chronically, happen all the time. But the doctor said, you know, just keep doing what you're doing. Just be smart about it. So how do they treat it? Well, I'm going next to see a specialist in the electrocardio uh, realm, and they will try to isolate that specific bad wire in the heart muscle and potentially ablate it, which is a fancy way of saying cutting the wire so it stops doing the funky chicken with my ventricle when I'm training. So I'm pretty happy about that. I don't know why I'm happy about that, but I am. This week, Coach has me on a rest week. He's such a warrior. Yeah, so I went out and ran four hours on the road with my friend Sunday. I feel fine. Yeah, but I'll take it. He's got me doing some bike work and some easy, shorter runs. It's raining here for Christmas. Yeah, it's not a white Christmas. So I set up my old road bike, Fujisan, on the trainer, out on the porch, put a new cheap tire on the back to take all that trainer abuse, and I've been watching my way through Marco Polo on Netflix on my trainer rides. And I started watching it because I thought the actor uh, was Adrian Grenier from Entourage. But it's not him. It just looks like him. It's some other pretty boy. And I, I actually like it. It's like Game of Thrones uh, in Mongolia. And there's naked women in sword fights in every episode. And I particularly appreciate the fact that that Hollywood here, I think it's Hollywood in this case, they're using actual Mongolian and Chinese actors, as far as I can tell, because they have a history of just casting any vaguely Asian-looking actors and thinking that we won't know the difference between an ethnic Chinese or a Filipino or a Korean or a Puerto Rican. So I appreciate they made the effort. Uh, my new book, Marathon BQ, is taking shape nicely. The editing is progressing apace, and I should be able to start promoting it in the new year, and I'll be asking for your help with that. I'll also be setting up my Boston Marathon campaign, my training plan, soon. And with that will come my request for financial support for Team Hoyt. And I found out through them, been talking talking with them, that a friend of theirs, Dr. Brian Lyons, will be pushing Rick this year. And I'm going to try to get him on for an interview. I've also uh, got a couple assignments for you this week. First thing is to give something healthy to your local food bank. Right? So the challenge here is that they only want packaged goods, canned goods and packaged goods, which by definition narrows your healthy choices. Right? So here's a couple of suggestions. Buy a bunch of those bags of dried beans or some brown rice. Stuff's cheap and healthy. Goes a long ways, too. 
or maybe some of that shelf-stable almond milk, if you want to spend a little more money, or a jar of that good organic almond butter or something like that. Think about it. There are some things that are packaged and healthy. There's no reason we should be forcing the food pantry people to eat crap, right? So that's one of your assignments. Second assignment is more of a suggestion. I know all your friends and my friends are going to be asking us for donations this year, right? That's just the world we live in. So my suggestion to you is to, at the beginning of the year, create an annual donation budget. So maybe it's like 10% of your income. Maybe it's $100. Or maybe you're one of those lucky people who can just set aside $10,000. I don't know. But whatever it is, then you decide how many donations you parse that up into. Maybe it's five donations of $20. And then every time someone asks you, you can donate throughout the year according to your budget, and it takes the stress out of it. And when you're done, you're done. All right, then. You can see all of these ramblings written out in the show notes of the podcast. It's also all on my website, which I know needs to be refurbished at runrunlive.com. I do have an email list, but all it does, folks, is automatically send you a notice with the show notes when the podcast drops, actually the day after the podcast drops, and you can reach me as C-Y-K-T Russell with two S's, two L's at Gmail and everywhere else, etc., etc. That's it for me. Enjoy your holidays. Don't forget to smile. Smiling makes a great gift. And I'll see you out there in the new year. Cheers. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry.